0: There's no control of migration on this border at all. We've got more people coming in. So this year is 200,000. Huge numbers. And it costs around £40,000 for each individual in the first year.
1: That's about 8 billion. Hello and welcome to Trigonometry. I'm Francis Foster. I'm Constantine Kissing. And this is a show for you if you want honest conversations with fascinating people. Our brilliant guest today is the founder for the
2: Centre for Migration and Economic Prosperity, Stephen Wolf. Welcome to Trigonometry. Oh,
0: thank you very much, guys. I really appreciate
2: you bringing me on. Uh, it's really great to have you on the show. Before we get into the conversation, I'll tell everybody a little bit about who are you, how are you, where you are, what is the <laughs> journey that brings you to be sitting here talking to us?
0: Well, I'm a Manx, so from your colleague over here, we've already had the kind of Manchester-Liverpool argument. I yeah. was b- born in Manchester, um, and I grew up uh, in a couple of council estates, one Moss Side, which most people uh, recognise as being from the riots of the 80s, a uh, pretty, pretty rough area, and then growing up in Withington uh, near a park where I used to do breakdancing and football, so that was, that was a brilliant thing. Um, I was lucky enough to have a family, um, an Irish grandmother, English grandfather, uh, black American uh, uh, grandfather and a Jewish grandmother who um, kind of, even though we lived on a council estate, believed that the way forward to get on was by education and just keep pushing, never allowing people to define you by who you are and just keep climbing that ladder but being decent along the way, trying not to be nasty to others. It's not always the way that the world works and so we read a lot and I won a scholarship to a what was then a grammar school became a private school, St. Bede's. From there, university, studied law in Aberystwyth, went on, became a barrister, uh, won a number of international awards across the globe for debating, uh, went to the World Championships, uh, you know, got to the quarterfinals where Gove was actually judging. So, you know, met a number of people with those. And that was always a fascinating part. Um, after being a barrister... For a number of years, I then moved into the city of London, so not really very far from here. Worked in Canary Wharf, worked over the city, and I moved into hedge funds, com- regulatory law, became general counsel. So by the time I decided to move into the heady world of Brexit politics and leaving the European Union and joining uh, UKIP, which for many was, a, you know, it's a kind of well, what's this kind of mixed race working class boy joining this racist UKIP party about? As it all was around. 2010-ish, um, it was it was very strange uh, for me to have been working in this environment in the city and doing some really big transactions. I mean, I worked on one of the deals when um, guys had got fined, uh, Barclays Bank had got fined about, I think it was about 500 million by the, the US authorities, and I had to do their global market conduct policy. That was big, big issues, and there through the crash. And then I went into politics, and I campaigned for uh, brexit and joined ukip obviously at one stage looking at the leadership from there and you know many people look online and see what what happened but we i left and became independent spent five years which was fascinating really interesting seeing how global politics interacted with european politics and uk politics loved campaigning just meeting Ordinary people during that campaign from 2010 right through 14 elections, um, right through 15 and then the 16 uh, referendum where ordinary people felt that they were empowered, that they had a voice, that they generally were going to be listened to. And this time the elites had a, a chance to have a kick in and hopefully change their minds about how they viewed them. That was one of the most exhilarating parts of my, my life, seeing freedom in action and real real freedom for within people's spirits and hearts. and uh, But it, we are where we are now. Um, I then um, lost my businesses that I saved for a, a rainy day uh, through COVID and uh, then decided, well, can't, I have an eight-year-old. I should be nine soon. As a father, you just can't allow your children to see you give up. Mm. And, and I, don't, I don't think it's easy in this country to give up because if you do, then it's an easy slide into absolutely nothing. I I came from nothing. I could go back to nothing, but I don't really want to. So I decided to try and um, rebuild through one of the issues which I think will not go away, which is immigration, and where voices of people are still being ignored, uh, certainly with the channel migrant crisis that we have at the moment. And I established the Centre for Migration and Economic Prosperity. So I think that's probably tried to put 54 years into, you know, less, more than 54 seconds, I'm afraid. Yeah,
2: well, you've done very well to do that. And we want to talk to you about class and immigration particularly. Yes. But it's just occurred to me uh, that one of the things that you obviously would have an interesting perspective on, given your background uh, and your heritage, what do you make of the way we talk about race in our society at the moment?
0: You know, oh, divisive. Absolutely. And it's, it, it is very much us and them. It's either that you are a pro-migrationist open door and therefore you're kind and you're warm and you're generous. Mm -hmm. And if you support uh, any form of controlled migration, whether it's through border controls, through visas, through the Immigration Act that's going through, then you are a racist or as a xenophobe and you're anti-human being. And you should therefore be pushed aside. I think there's also a huge amount of class involved in that if Mm -hmm. you're well off. If you're university educated with an opportunity of life to be able to benefit here in the UK or be able to move around the global networks, as I have fortunately been able to work in the US, work in Hong Kong, if you're able to do that too, then you're part of a global elite which relies seriously heavily on the low income and wages of of migrants coming in, filling the jobs that you like, getting into the coffee shop as you turn up at the airport, you know, getting your taxi that's taking you there. All of these are what's regarded as low-income jobs that you wouldn't deem to do yourself. But you will insult the home people of that country. And here in the UK, it might predominantly be regarded as white working-class individuals, as gammons or whatever, will insult you because you won't do those jobs rather than considering why don't they do their jobs, isn't it? Because perhaps they, the incomes of those jobs are not sufficient for them to have a family and a house in the area that they want to live in. So I think that divisive element that is clearly there as part of uh, an elitist strategy to divide uh, particular p- political parties, Labour does it more, I think the Liberal Democrats and the Greens do it too, consolidate their intellectual base as they do so. But I think it's also been used, and we might come on to that with like Black Lives Matter and all the rest of it, as a very violent vehicle now for division in this country to try and manipulate the minds of individuals, that those who don't have this kind of global elitist idea, and I do believe it's organised by large corporates who benefit the most, and those in large international organisations who benefit from the billions that are being put into migration issues they're the ones who benefit the most and we need to create now an intellectual divide between
1: people. Stephen why is it that these elites that let's call them that why is it they don't understand this why is it that they don't get it because to me it's a fairly simple concept.
0: Yeah but if you live in the lap of luxury if you're just going to get up in the morning get on and let's just take it as you part of what Orwell said in 1984, the 13% of the outer ring or the outer level. If you're going off in the morning and you get your train and you hit into the city of London and you're a banker or a hedge fund lawyer or you're an accountant there or one of the IT guys who are doing really, really well, then for you, it's not something that you will see on a day-to-day basis. I mean, you're getting a reasonable bonus and a good salary. To be able to buy a house in a nice area, which doesn't have the impact that you see in mass migration. So, if you take my uh, street where I lived in Manchester, in, 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 in kind of Withington at the end, but if, even if you take it right back to Moss Side, in Moss Side, it was predominantly those who'd come from the West Indies who were living in there, uh, and that has changed somewhat over time. You know, you get Somalians have come in certain parts of Hume. but if you look at down um, Withington. That was predominantly white working class and Irish working class, mm. and the immigrants there were those who'd come over, or like my grandmother at the age of fourteen to work for the nuns, and all those whose families were first or second generation. Similar types of culture, you know, Christian Judeo basis. You might say, okay, they were white, fair enough, but so was like ninety-eight percent of the population mm. till roughly just after the sixties. That's what England was based upon. Now, if you go down to the same streets, it is, if I'm right in terms of the demographics, it's more Pakistani-based uh, community now that is, is stretched across from the Levin-Schumann-Longside coming down. Now, many of them have lived there for a long time. They've got successful businesses. They are working in jobs. Nothing to say they don't do the same level of hard work. But the communities are different. They have a different religion. So that might clash. People might say, I don't like that religion. Some might say, I love it. The idea is that community is no longer the same. Now, that change there, which impacts the working class and even the lower middle class more than the upper, upper classes, is that when I leave university, I might have had a boyfriend or a girlfriend who is from Bangladesh or from Abu Dhabi or from China, and they're going off to be a banker in New York. Well, that's fine. We've had the same intellectual levels and we're interested in the same things. Let's get in a big house. Let's get in the great bonuses. Let's be able to go off to the Hamptons at the weekends, fine, our, our jets to Dubai and have our five-star holidays. It doesn't really matter to them because the poverty levels at the bottom, they never see. They don't have to go into those areas. They don't even have to get drugs in those areas now because they'll probably get, you know, a drone or Uber to be able to.
1: <laughs> sorry, Uber, you
0: know, there have been one or two cases where Allegedly. people have that, but you know what I mean. It's on the internet and people mm. can send it. They mm. they called it for, right, I'm not, anyway. Let's not go down there just in case it's picked up as being something that, but but you know the point. So yeah. they're up there. They don't need to, and if they want their drugs or their you know, whatever it is, they they put a call in and someone flies in in a pretty nice car and whatever it's delivered to them. Mm. So they're separate.
2: They're insulated from the yeah. consequences of the rags. Absolutely. Yeah. Of course
0: they are. And they're insulated by their own uh, uh, wealth and ease of life that, is, that comes with having that division. And then it comes to something I think is intellectually there for them. I've been trying to ponder an aspect about it when you read, uh, I think it's in England by England by George Orwell, um, where he talks about even you know in the 1900s, how the middle class of England would rather be more comfortable talking to a foreigner than someone from the working class estates of their own, Mm. and they have more of an affinity of that. And I, I, I generally think that there are two aspects about that. One is class and snobbery. So racism is something that is a cultural aspect about Britain. We can go right back to Beyond the Romans to see evidence of that. But so is snobbery. Snobbery is the second pillar of our cultural heritage and it is something that firmly fits into the class system that we have developed over years. So you can quite easily sit at a conversational table and say those Brits don't want to do the work. They just don't want to do the work. They're too lazy. They're too thick. They're too stupid, the same arguments that floated through, through Brexit. And, and I think for them it's an easy thing to divide. Look at me. Haven't I done well? didn't I start my business on my own and now look at my house and, you know, I've got my second home down in Devon. It's wonderful. Not like that. Scum over there. You know, won't get up in the morning and do a job. So it's that snobbery element to protect themselves, insulate themselves, and therefore that permeates downwards from the very elites who have real wealth, where they really benefit from mass migration, to those in the, the next tier down who think, well, we need to follow along those lines but it's always because they are, as you say, hidden from the consequences at the bottom level of housing, hospitals, schools, wages. All of those are impacted at the lower levels, never at the top.
1: Hey Francis, have you decided what to get your dad for Father's Day? Same thing as always, a couple of pints down the dog and duck, plus... A new Brexit means Brexit car sticker to replace the one I got him last year.
2: Mate, Brexit was in 2016. Do you not think he might want something a bit more up-to-date, like a new Ridge wallet? This is mine. It's smooth, sleek, stylish, and it can hold 12 cards, and there's also a clip on the back for cash as well. It's not going to create a bulge in your trousers like those bulky old wallets. It'll make your dad look like a top-level player.
1: Great idea. He can also put his Brexit sticker on it, which means the problematic older ladies are going to love him. Yeah, okay. The great thing about Ridge is that they give you a lifetime
2: guarantee, which means if you want, you can have just one wallet for the rest of your life. Ridge is so
1: confident in their product, they'll give you 45 days to test drive their wallet. That means you can get the wallet, use it, and if you don't like it, you can return it in 45 days. Unlike Brexit. Mm. Because Ridge is such great guys, they're going to give you 15% off and free worldwide shipping and returns. That's 15% off and free worldwide shipping and returns. To
2: take advantage of this incredible offer, go to ridge.com forward slash trigger. That's ridge.com forward slash trigger and use our special promo
1: code, which is, of course, trigger. And the problem is because they're impacted, what happens is it, it just seems to be this chasm that means that they just can't empathize and we saw it with covid i remember talking to a friend of mine who you know works at a very very well to do public school you know very in favor of lockdowns very in favor that you know this was a good thing and a positive thing he just couldn't get his head around the fact that this was crippling ordinary people and ordinary people's businesses just couldn't get his head around it
0: yeah and and, and they just don't seem to understand now because the divisive element in our society even look at the economics of it i, I think i look at how fortunate i i am uh, in the sense that born in 1967 we still had a grammar school system that enabled large numbers of working class uh, men, predominantly men, I say at the time, but certainly women were coming through at those stages through the 60s and 70s to start getting into the educational levels. Now, I went through law, but you'll see that there's some great actors that followed similar routes to be able to do that. You saw them coming into the civil service. You also have the second element that was the what I regard the, 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 the transitory unification of Britain that was caused by the First and Second World War, where if everybody looks at duty of the Queen, there were huge numbers of people who had duty of the crown and the country at their heart because they'd risked their lives for it in the Second World War. They'd literally watched people die next to them. I mean, I I, I talk about my grandfather um, sitting in a pub on his own in the Green End in Manchester, which has gone now for housing due to large scale migration. Let's get rid of it and just build more houses. which are going to see huge huge amounts more in the, in the country now, and he would sit there and. Become silent um, when he and you knew everyone said leave Jim alone when he do that with his brandy and whatever because he was memorizing, remembering the death and destruction. But that unification also came through with the grammar school system in the sixties and seventies, where this this was supportive element for the nation as a whole, and more and more people like myself got through. And I don't see that now. Yes, more people are going into to university, but what we've seen is that income division has, instead of what we saw in the 60s and 70s, becoming more spread, the total income and capital of the country being spread out more, it's now contracted. Anyone will tell you that the rich have definitely become richer over the past uh, 10, 15 years, maybe even 20. And certainly the middle classes have become squeezed, not just here, but in the United States, more visibly perhaps in Australia. But it's happening all across the Commonwealth. In those countries, and, and why is that happening? It's happening predominantly because we've got large-scale mass migration, which is increasing the numbers of lower-income individuals, and we've had the use of stock markets and uh, capital growth in housing, that is protecting those who already have those assets. So they don't need to see us; they're quite happy to be separated from us, and. I'm I'm trying to, I and mean, your audience will pick up on, on on a movie. There was a movie where literally um, the wealthy lived in space, and they just took the assets from those down on on Earth, and the the chasm there was was actually <laughs> space, and I think that was a metaphor for expressing where they are now. The chasm is that they're sitting, whether it's in their uh, uh, Park Lane uh, houses or sitting in the big flats in New York overlooking the parks there, they've got their space between them and us. And they might turn around and say, oh, look, I'm going to have a wonderful ball or a party, you know, for the charity events. But that's just really solving their souls, solving their consciences, and actually also making themselves look good. And the politicians that go along with that from the political parties, whether it's the Labour Party or Democrats in the United States, they're actually also working and conniving with
2: those who really just don't care. Stephen, you you talk about mass immigration. Mm. I think before we carry on, we should maybe explain to people what is actually going on. Because for a lot of people, uh, they'll have a particular view of it, but it will be local to them or it will be based on the headline that they've read. Now, I came to this country from Russia in 1995 uh, at that point, I think the level of immigration was about 60,000 a year, 70,000 a year, something like that. Yes. And at that time, 3% of the British public thought that immigration was a major issue. In other words, people felt fairly comfortable with what was happening. They didn't feel uh, particularly disrupted. Their lives were not being damaged by people that's like right. me coming. What have we seen in the last 25, 30 years?
0: Well, the level of net migration that's coming in is consistently over two hundred to 250,000 now for 10 years or more. So you're adding an extra 250,000 that's coming into the to the country. Now, some of them are coming for students, some of them are coming for work, others are family reunions, but the numbers are huge. So what that's doing is increasing the population. Then that's what we might call um, uh, the legal migration levels. Then you've got what some will call illegal immig- immigration stroke asylum. On And it's the argument that they're illegal until they make an application for asylum. I I don't really want to make that distinction as such. What I will will say is that there is certainly illegal immigration into the country, but there's also genuine asylum seekers. And we must, always must make that clear distinction between them.
2: Do we know approximately what sort of numbers we're talking about, which is not people who are genuine people fleeing terror and war and whatever, but people who are capitalising, let's say, an opportunity that I don't blame them for? Right, they're trying to make a better life for themselves. I don't
0: think any of us can make that argument. You'd want to do the same
2: if you could, exactly. So, but what kind of numbers are we talking about on an annual basis with just the purely illegal immigration that we don't think is genuine asylum seekers?
0: Oh, right, okay. Well, I think what we have to try and work backwards if we can, um, because the, the UK's statistical bodies cannot make any assessment of what is illegal. Migration. In fact, they just published a report on the twenty-fourth of February, which almost at the top is saying we cannot tell you what illegal migration is into this country. What they will tell you is that migration flows from people coming on boats, which is popular at the moment, but they've been coming in backs of lorries, trains, and planes for, for decades now. So, and some of those will be asylum seekers. Some of those will be illegal. There'll be overstayers who will come over on a visa for education and disappear into the ether, they're illegal. And what we will then have is other levels in between that. So they're trying to say you can't fix the numbers. The statistical bodies are trying to formulate a way in which they can assess that. But we do have research from the US, from the UK, from Holland, that has been reported even to an extent, um, I think it was about 15 years ago we had reports that I've been looking at recently that would indicate that we have between 600,000 and 1.2 million illegal migrants in this country. Those are huge numbers. And when you look at what's coming over uh, on the the boats at at the moment, so we start just on the boats, 891 in 2019, 8,000 odd in 2020, 18,000 in 2021. This year, they're estimating that we might have sixty to 100,000 coming on that boat route. Wow. Okay. You add then that we've had about 25,000 coming through legal routes from Syria and we're setting up with Afghanistan. So generally, one could argue that we get around 100,000 a year that are coming in through all the various routes to add on to the net migration levels. Many of those people will then move into the asylum process, of which about 90 odd, 98% of them make the application. About 60% of them are successful. But then we don't, we don't remove those who are unsuccessful. So you can have cataclysmic issues by those who are not removed, as we saw with the attempted bomber in Liverpool. So we do know that there are hundreds of thousands of people out there who are not being removed, who failed not only the asylum application, but we were not removing them. Now, you can ask why. People will argue that, look, actually, we've only got really on average around thirty-five to 40,000 a year in terms of asylum applications. That's the same as came over through the boats, uh, in, sorry, in the lorries and the vans over the past uh, decades or so. To an extent, that is true. But that hides the overall picture of those who get here, overstay and hide, etc. And I think what we're going to see now is bigger numbers. So if we take Afghanistan, for example... Afghanistan is wholly different to to Syria. Population is, is twice as much. In Afghanistan, we'd spent trillions each year building up a middle class or a class that we thought we could work with. So these people have gone from the time of when the Taliban were in charge of 98% poverty level with just that 2%. We've actually added an extra 10 to half a million people there who have now got used to having televisions, going to the malls, having... Restaurants, all funded from our taxpayers' money, effectively, because their economy doesn't create enough to feed them and create that lifestyle for them. They'll want to leave now. The Taliban are making it clear that they can leave. In Syria, there is border controls. In, in, in Afghanistan, there's not. We have drone footage that shows 1,500 vehicles leaving in a day with 10, 20 people on the backs of lorries, paying $10 to the Taliban border guards to get out, then paying 1,500, uh, sorry, 5,000 US dollars to get them over into Turkey, 5,000 uh, dollars again to get them over, uh, sorry, 1,500, 5,000 to get them over to Calais, and then 5,000 euros to get them into the UK, about average 12,000 pounds. Some of them can pay for that because they've had savings or they sell their watches or jewellery. Others can't. But the why we're expecting large numbers to flow is because they're all still the same numbers coming from Iran and, Ira- uh, and Iraq, About 84% of everybody that comes over on the boats are from those two countries. And those routes are now well trodden. The people traffickers, who are a separate body mainly to the drug traffickers, are interlinked at certain stages for protection elements where they pay a tithe to do so, they can now allow those numbers to come through. So if you expect this year the conservative estimates to 60,000, the median estimates to 100,000, I don't think that's unsubstantiated. Plus, we're going to have to take large numbers of Ukrainians in as well. And the numbers there are estimated between, you know, fifty to 100,000. So this year is 200,000. Huge numbers. And it costs around £40,000 for each individual in the first year. That's about 8 billion if we take all those numbers in one year. So there's costs, there's housing. Where are we going to look after them? Where are we going to feed them? So it's really significant things that government has to have policies for,
2: Stephen, I think one of the things that a lot of people watching and listening to this will struggle to reconcile as I think I think most of us do, and I certainly do, is on the one hand, everyone in this room is a descendant of immigrants.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: I am a first generation immigrant. Francis mum's an immigrant. You, yep. you talked about your background, our staff, the same. How do we reconcile the desire to protect people who are fleeing difficult situations, war? conflict, murder, torture, all of that horrible stuff that happens elsewhere Mm -hmm. in the world. And I desire to be compassionate because we are incredibly privileged and extraordinarily fortunate to be living in the UK, in the West more broadly. We are rich, we are safe, our countries are stable, they're, you know, democratic, you might argue, (laughs) right? Like we we enjoy tremendous privilege and it is a natural human thing, I think, to, to... feel compassion and empathy for people who don't have that and who want to have it. Mm -hmm. I would love every person in the world to be as wealthy and as comfortable as we are. I I would. And I think most people would. Mm -hmm. How do we reconcile that with the practical reality of what happens to a country when there is this level of churn and rapid change and uh, the security issues that come with immigration from certain parts of the world, etc., etc.? How do we we square that circle in our heads?
0: It's not going to be an easy thing to square because... You have to look at your heart and your head in terms of this. So let's try and break it down if I, if I can. I, I do believe that we've got to have legislation in place. And of course, we've got the international agreements with the UN uh, uh, refugees, regulations and laws that enable people, as we're seeing now, a genuine asylum issue happening in Ukraine that deals with that. And I think that's perfectly fair. Every country who signs up to that has to have a responsibility in order to treat people fairly and look after them. And we then need to assess the global, net, global issues. So the UN are estimating we've got something around 66 million people moving around in terms of this uh, migrant flow, illegal or asylum, but generally moving to get out of their homes. The issues that we have to face is a recognition of modernity of our life and the ease of travel and technology. Technology has been sending messages to people in small parts of Africa that never had televisions to say, look at London, the streets are paved to gold. So those in Guatemala where whole villages have left to cross over the borders into Texas, the US, place of uh, land of honey and gold again, sort of thing. So their lives are are distinctly better when they get here in the sense that they're they're not struggling in the way for food and daily living. So that's an economic migrant issue. So the question we have to ask ourselves is, are we going to accept everybody, genuine refugees and economic migrants, and just allow everyone to move? Because if you do that, you've got good examples of what happens. In Germany, when Merkel said, I will open the borders, they've now had over 2.5 million people since 2014. It's an extra cost of between 10 and 15 billion a year to that nation. And you could see the economic changes. You say we're wealthy nations, but we're not really. Look at the average salaries of some of the people in the north of England. I keep pointing this out. The difference between living in London, where people's average salaries seem to be around 40, 50,000 a year, compared to twenty, twenty-five, in the... You can still buy houses for 80,000 in the north of England, where that wouldn't even get you a a front door, I think, somewhere (laughs) in in London, Mm. you know. So the poverty level's up there. And I don't see people going into the really poor areas of, of England. They kind of ignore it. It just doesn't exist to them. And so we are creating huge poverty gaps here in the UK by importing those people who are incredibly poor from elsewhere. So is the solution to say, let's just open the doors? Well, in that case, you're only going to get about 20-odd countries in the world that are going to be able to take the numbers. Look at the populations of the world, billions. If we said, let's open the door, those billions will want to move. And what happens to our economies then? Do we stay wealthy? I don't think so. We're already becoming the most dense country in Europe. I think there was, over the past few months, we're still balancing between Holland and ourselves as England is the most dense place. When they come here, they concentrate into certain areas, London, Birmingham, the cities primarily. But if you look at places like Winchester, where I've come from, we're building huge numbers of housing, 4,000, 5,000, 6,000 houses. We've got an estimate for building another 57,000 houses. Over the past few years, we're on average building around 165,000 houses a year, and yet house prices aren't falling, and we still have people living on the streets. We still have a quarter of a million people living in homeless shelters and one-bedroom flats and bedsits. We can't build enough houses to accommodate those already living here and expect to be able to do that when coming through. So... There are no easy solutions, let's get this right. No one should say just closing the border will solve the problem overnight, because then we are disregarding our responsibilities to those in other parts of the world. For a start, we shouldn't be developing warlike situations with other countries. We shouldn't be interfering in nations to do regime change as we've done in how many countries over the past 10 years. Someone estimated that at one stage the CIA are involved in 130 operations, 130 countries where they're operating to try and do regime change or get their particular people in power. Well, maybe China's doing the same. Maybe other countries are involved in that. But every time you do that, you create conflict. You get armed war. You get murder. You get death. And when that happens, people want to flee. So our responsibility as a nation should actually, as the United Nations, not be just trying to dole out cash to salve your conscience for the problems that you're creating. You should be looking at how we can create peace and stability in those countries first and foremost by stop saying we're backing the big corporates that we want them to take over your country. We want all your assets. And actually leave it to the people in charge and then help them create economies in their countries that grow and then support their nations. And those people want to stay. Now, that's why I say it's not going to be easy, because we cannot, as a small nation, absorb the world's mass migration from conflict to economic migration, and if they're right, maybe environmental issues as well. We can't do that without creating an even bigger gap between those at the bottom and those at the top. We must start looking at how we can try and create a peaceful environment and invest in nations to develop their own economies. If we can do that, then we go some way to try and solve those issues.
1: Because it's a bit hypocritical of us saying to Syrian refugees you're not allowed in when you look at what's happened to their homeland, you know, which we have played a part in.
0: Oh, absolutely. I mean, you know, you've talked about it. I mean, in, in, in terms of the Ukraine and Syria, but Afghanistan, yeah. in Iraq, in Iran, there is a game that's being played by guys who, and women you know, and it's equally the same. I saw it in the United States when I'm over there. People call them the neocons. Some will call them World Economic Forum. Others will call them the military-industrial complex. Yeah, I'm sure they're all connected in some ways. They all go to the same parties. They, like, go skiing in the same parts of Aspen. You know, they send their kids to the same universities and schools. They know where they are. They date each other. That's what they do. But as they, at the end of the day, have pressed the button to murder someone in a country thousands of miles away that they won't see, and they get into their big car and they go to their house party in the Hamptons at the end of the day. They're responsible for the transformations. And they may sit there thinking with their glass of, you know, big cup of JD and think it's wonderful. What a great day I've had. I'm protecting our environment. You're not. What you're doing is protecting your environment, your personal space, your personal bank account, this big frame of a house that you're living in. You really don't give a damn about the people that have died in those countries, those who are having to move across and pay gangsters to be able to get them out of those, all the people living in estates that I grew up in who have to suffer the consequences. That's the big issues that we have. That's why I got involved in politics. That's why I'm still knocking
1: around. (laughs) (laughs) But that subject is a very taboo one. The fact that we're having this conversation, you wouldn't see it being had in a lot of other places with this frankness why is that
0: because they have, they someone's just opened my eyes to something called the Overton window i, mm. I mean I've, I've got to study it a little bit more to try and get a full grip about it because i don't like to just take a theory without trying to understand the full background about it but what to an extent that i get from that is that it's okay for us to have a little bit of discontent with the elites they allow us a little bit of freedom and movement to do so and if you move up the ladder too much then they'll cut you off at the knees um you know, one can argue that you saw that with the rapprochement between um, Martin Luther King and Malcolm X during the, the, during the 60s, representing two wings of the Black Freedom Movement, one which was the middle class and one was very much a working class environment. And, and when both of them started to come together, it is argued that they moved on from saying it's just white versus black, which fitted into a really nice scenario for the FBI and the elites to to dissect them and diversify them. But when they started talking about the economics of what the people lived in and how we should be changing the economics of the United States Mm. soon after they were killed. Now, one could argue that was coincidence. One could argue that was planned. But what we get with scenario in our country is that whether you've got those threats at the top, when people start talking about the economics and combining all this together, the window of opportunity to express it in our modern window, whether this is the Overton window or not, is reduced. So when I would go on to TV on the BBC, it'd often be like three people pro-mass migration and calling me a racist, xenophobe, and not caring <laughs> against myself. <laughs> now I could handle it. I mean, I, I don't mind. I've got, you know, kind of broad shoulders. I mean, when you come off the estate, you know, you've had a lot worse coming at you than someone who's been educated at, you know, Oxbridge and shouting a few nasty words. Sticks and stones can break my bones, not a word that comes from someone from St. Hilda's, (laughs) you know. And so that is is why they don't like the frankness. They don't like the frankness because it challenges them to try and move out of their comfortable environments. The task for most of us, whether it's in politics, we talk about this, is to try and bring out the reality of, of, of the overall impacts to the communities in the home state, and then separate it from those who are benefiting from this. Uh, and, and I'm now starting uh, to get a bit of funding from people to start do the research on what I call the immigration industry. There's a huge amount of people benefit from this. So far, I can see just on easy money, Uh, very easily identifiable money, that we've got £250 million to £500 million a year being handed out to organisations that help asylum applicants and immigrants in this country. So those are just the NGOs, these are charities, as they call themselves, that come out. So that's a lot of people getting a lot of money from that. Then there are um, universities that get funding for research projects And those research projects often come out and say, look, mass migration creates huge amounts of GDP for us, there's no GMP difficulties, but they're the ones getting the funding. Organizations like myself, which I would need two or three people to be able to help research at the same level the universities have, don't get anything near that. So then they've got the material that they can serve through the research that they can use through the... Um, polls that they do, and then that gets into the press with their friendly univers- friendly journalists, who many of them might have gone to university with, who then print what they've got. So they perpetuate that industry. Of course, you've got the lawyers that are making money out of it through legal aid. Get a divorce, try and get your child back from your wife or your child back from your husband. No legal aid there for you. But you do get it if you're an asylum applicant. So, there are some genuine costs going out to people who are making a lot of money out of this. And if you look at corporates, I mean, it's Mir, Circo and Clear Spring Houses Limited signed a contract for 10 billion with the government to house those in initial accommodation and then long term accommodation. 10 billion. But that was before we've had the latest mass influx. And now we're spending 4.7 million pounds a day housing in hotels and bedsets. And I'll give you an example of someone who pointed out to me, said, look, I'm in a poor area of the north. A guy came up and bought three houses, which might only be like two or three bedroom houses. And they've just housed them with those people coming from asylum applicants. And they're getting double or triple for that house than they would do from someone paying on the local estate.
2: Hey Constantine, do you love trigonometry? Of course, incredible interviews, hilarious live streams, hard-hitting satire, plus my
1: handsome jawline. Whatever takes away from your hairline. But if you do love trigonometry and you want to support us, there's only one place to do that. And that's on Locals.
2: Yes, Locals is a brilliant platform that has been incredibly supportive to our show
1: and other problematic creators. The great thing about Locals is that it's a community for people who love trigonometry.
2: That's right, it's a place for you to hang out with like-minded people,
1: share thoughts, memes, and discuss the show. You can enjoy it for free but it also gives you the option of supporting us for as little as $7 a month. And if you want to give
2: more, you can. We have incredible rewards for our higher-tier supporters as well. We've got everything
1: from mugs, monthly group calls, and one-on-two chats with me and KK. Get
2: in. Join our community by hitting the link in the description and the pinned comment below. See you there, guys. Stephen, the the running theme through what you're talking about is, is the an elite that is uninterested uh, or perhaps even actively disinterested in the needs and views of the rest of the society. Yes. And I suppose uh, I would argue that a certain stratification of society is always going to be the case mm-hmm. and it's inevitable. Of it's course. human nature, hierarchy, yeah. et cetera. But it seems to me that we have come to a point where even a colossal shock like Brexit, Francis and I both voted remain in that referendum. Yeah. Yeah. We weren't politically particularly switched on at that point. I would say. But that could have been a wake-up call to the elites on this issue. I'm not sure how much... I mean, it might have been a wake-up call, but we've very quickly moved on to other things and we've just channeled those same bitterness and division and everything into COVID and now Ukraine and, and yes. there'll be next things to come. But fundamentally, I see it all the time. I remember talking to to a friend of mine... Who I knew through my previous work. It was, I think, she was French, and we were talking about Brexit, and she was saying, "Well, I don't know. I don't know why. Why can't like in France we just, we, you know, the people voted, and we went, no, we don't want this, so we just cancelled it. And why can't they do that here?" <laughs> and the, you know, and she's not a bad person. She's no. a, she's a, she's a good girl. You know, there's nothing wrong no. with her, no. but. <sighs> I just it make I I I find it difficult to understand how people can be so self obsessed and so ignorant to the because you can be self obsessed in the short term but in the long term if you keep alienating your own voters and the people who actually run the country by working and you know doing everything that's not a recipe for a good society down the line and that's why you have to have gated communities because you're terrified of the poor people that live around you
0: Yes, and of course, what happens now, and you'll, you'll see that whether it's gated communities, whether it's the fact that on the streets of almost everywhere in the UK now, you're seeing video cameras and technology being used to identify who we are. You know, you're following us on our phones. We're using big high-tech companies to put it into our phones and our laptops. We're seeing social media as a way of actually knowing what we do and what we say. Monitoring is a really important part of keeping control when you've got bigger, bigger po- populations. It's not that we haven't had this similar... Uh, sorry, uh, the kind of differences between the poor and the rich create huge issues in this country or any other country in, in, the, in the past. One could argue, when you look at the French Revolution, that was a classic example of where the elites had just really gone too far. One could even step back into the ways of the end of the Roman era, where you look looking an era and others were just expanded their empire too much, but just were enjoying the spoils of their empires in Rome by having a ball all the time. You know, we know what was going on in their their kind of hedonistic end days. Great parties, mate. Yeah. <laughs> I'm not sure I'd want to get involved in some of them when the, when the animals were involved. You know, that, that yeah. keep me. I might be a wolf, but keep me well out of that, <laughs> to be honest. Uh, but even here in, in 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 Britain as a whole, we've we've gone through our riots. Whether it's the simple thing as saying the gin riots, uh, because we've now decided that we don't want everyone getting drunk on homemade gin, and we're losing revenue, so we created pub laws and licensing laws to bring it back into pubs. You know, that was a, a small element. But we've had challenges in this country. The Corn Laws created riots. We've had, you know, from the, the levellers and the diggers, the Pentridge Martyrs, to uh, when we go down to Merthyr Tidville, we had people killed in Merthyr Tidville simply for fighting for the right to vote. You know, we've had people challenging up in Peterloo, my, my home time, simply for asking for the vote. We lost the lives of women, you know, in, in, in times of the, the, you know, putting themselves under the horse, one of them put threw themselves on front of a horse simply for the right to vote for women. So we've had riots in this country. And even if you look at when in the 1980s, when we had the Mosside riots, the St. Paul's riots, the riots coming down in Brixton, all going up at the same time with Heseltine coming up into Liverpool. I understand the people, I really do. Yeah. You certainly do when you put your contracts into arms companies and helicopter companies, didn't you? That meant often killed and burned people in the same time. They are, we had riots between those who said we've had enough. Now, I don't think we're going to get that many riots anymore because if you've seen the way that our police are now virtually paramilitary dressed, as though they're out of some Stormtrooper movie with an Arnold Schwarzenegger, you know, or Star Wars. And you can see the way that the army in France just recently... For, for COVID um, demonstrations, put 55 armed tanks. And there were, you know, I mean, people were seeing that. 55 armed tanks on the streets of Paris. Not a city of love, but a city of war. We know what they've got behind us and the training that they do to be able to disarm us when we've got, this is, if we complain about it, it's not going to be like the poll tax riots with a few horses running over us. This is literally a militarized force now that will be used against the people. And they've practised about it. They have training sessions about it. They're quite happy to use guns on us if they want to. So I don't think we're going to have riots. And secondly, there is still a genuine belief in Britain that we can transform our nation through the ballot box. Mm. And Brexit Mm. was that opportunity for them to say, OK, let's step back. Let's go back from what we saw with politics of the past, where we realised we've gone too far and we can actually step out. Because our country has had... That time, as I said, you know, from uh, the, the removal of Charles I and our own civil war, we've had these points upon our time when we gradually got little bits of freedom. It was only, what, I think 1930s when we got votes for the women as an equal stage at the age of 18, and then we handed it over to the EU, to, in my argument, to, to remove some of those rights. It took us hundreds of years to get universal suffrage. At the age of 18. So we have had to fight to get there. Brexit gave us an opportunity for them to sit back and say, okay, maybe we should allow this to happen and we move on again and we start to transform. But they haven't. You could argue that COVID's come in, you could argue that what's happening in Ukraine, or you could argue that all of these are just great opportunities for us to suppress that. And let's mm-hmm. go back to the plan that we had. And I think that's what they're doing.
1: Do you think Brexit, I, I don't want to use the word betrayed because it's the wrong word, but you get where I'm, where I'm going with this. With yeah. the, the, the initial promise, what was, what was promised to people, which was a control of immigration.
0: Yeah, I, I would say, you know, in America they use the word rhino for a Republican in name only. We have got mm. bino, Brexit in name only, mm. just because we left the European Parliament and there's no MEPs there. How much real transformational change have we had? Vast numbers of our regulations still aligned with the EU. Most of the trade agreements we have are based similarly along the lines of the trade agreements that we had with the EU. And on immigration and some of the big issues, certainly no major transformation. And where, instead of using it as a real massive, energetic opportunity to enthuse the British population uh, and, and get ourselves out there to being a transformative, uh, bright Britain, I think we just contracted on ourselves and the bitterness that came straight after that the kind of uh, attack on those who got Brexit from those who were just a continuity remain, some people call them. And that's unfortunately just fed into where we are. In immigration, absolutely no movement whatsoever. Goodness, no. There's no control of migration on this border at all. We've got more people coming in. And all we did was say that European Union citizens have a slight restriction in being able to get here. Those who were already here, we ended up finding out that we had more European Union citizens actually registered in the UK who've been given permanent rights to remain. So it's not like we've removed them and and tossed them over the border as was concerned about, and yes, we're gonna kick them all out, if you remember some of the arguments through that. We were never gonna do that. And it wasn't sensible to do that either. That's not the sort of nation that we are. It's about moving together, working together, And recognising where we are in the difficulties that we had and then saying, OK, time to sit back. Let's assess where we are. We've got housing needs. We've got hospital needs. We've got transport needs. We've got to feed the population. Now we know where we are. Let's try and manage the migration levels. Let's work out how we can create an economy that can be vibrant enough. Let's see if we can utilise those people who are already here who are first and second and third generation Indians to help us with a trade deals and trade with India. Let's look at those like yourself, you know, to be able to do trade deals with Russia and open up cross
2: businesses. Trust me, I would not be very good on that. I'm not that popular no, but there, but you, I see what you're saying. The
0: point is we have an indigenous community here of yeah. people that it embedded in here, we should have been giving them the tools and the opportunities through
2: government to go out and do that. Stephen, how much of this is about guilt? Because there is a narrative in Britain that's, I don't know if it's always been the case, it wasn't so, so wasn't noticeable to me when I first came here as a kid, which, which is that Britain is bad. It's a bad country. It, it colonized, it invaded, it enslaved, it, yes. it profited from the misery, it went all around the world and oppressed people, it brought them over here in, in terrible conditions and they were treated very badly when people came. Mm-hmm. You know, no blacks, no Irish, no dogs, whatever the slogans were, yep. all of that. We are guilty. We've done wrong. And now the most important thing is that we atone for our sins and, frankly, if we can self-flagellate and punish ourselves, even better, even better.
0: Well, yes, absolutely. And I think uh, there is uh, guilt in terms of our historical context of Britain, in terms of the way that we went out and struck an empire. But name me many Western countries that didn't do the same. Look at Belgium, the way that they absolutely massacred people in the Congo. You know, you have Italy, who's done the same. Portugal and Spain in South America. Didn't it's not
2: just Western countries, by the way. It's not just Western The Muslim was thinking, world was a colonizing like, world. The, the Russian world. Empire was a colonizing world. The Muslim
0: world had the the control over the slave trade. And, you know, you also look at parts of Africa. I think, I might be wrong here, and I'll get wrong, but someone said that the Ashantis grew wealthy on the trade of slaves, being able to enable them to be able to be transported out. So I think, you know, when you're looking at... Um, the slave community as being a commodity, just like coffee or tea, and people were making money out of it. It goes back to the commercialization of them. But should I then go to my house and then get a whip and whip myself at the back for something that someone did hundreds of years ago.
1: Depends if you're Catholic or not.
0: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, let's not go down there. But, that or if you just enjoy that kind <laughs> of thing. That's <laughs> the other Yeah, one. I know. I, I heard there's certain parties in London that get on with that. You know, but at the end of the day, the communities of today shouldn't be responsible and feel that kind of guilt for what happened 100 years ago. Otherwise, I, as a Northerner, want to go and find the Normans for harrying the North And creating the first genocide in this country Mm. because that's what those, which is modern day France, did. They wanted to wipe out those who were opposing them. Do we go to um, Bath and level Bath now for all the sins of slavery and rape and pillaging that the Italian Romans did in our country? Do we dig up all our roads and say, we don't want those Romans? Because that's what guilt is. And those who start pulling down, the statutes are only referencing to one country because it's about hatred of this country. Mm. It's not about hatred of the other countries for doing it. And so I, I think guilt is very, very bad. But guilt is something that is really part and parcel of our education system at the moment. I think, clearly, there are those who feel guilty in the academic circles, and they're educated to do that. And when they come out, it's all now filtering through. I mean, I certainly had... Uh, My own daughter talking about the Vikings and the Normans, and she's starting to talk about that now at the age of eight and nine, and I can see through it. So what I do is I have other books that I start reading to her about the history of England that I've collected, and and she sees a different angle, not from those that are in the academic tombs that are being pushed upon our people of today. We should not forget, and that's we shouldn't forget what happened, because we forget what's happened, we can't use it today to look forward about how we improve our world. Um, I'm trying to think of the uh, Labour leader who, in the 80s who was pilloried for his bad dress and style. Kinnock? Uh, no, oh, before, 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 before Kinnock. And he used to say, if you don't know about history, you don't know about our future. And I think we have to look at that and analyse it and say, yes, what we did was bad. But it doesn't mean we start dipping our hands into our pockets now and taking out the billions that should be helping our own country in compensation to those other countries. Because it won't benefit them. We know that every amount of money that we're handing over to those countries is being used badly anyway. Isn't it better to try and do what I said at the beginning, which is try and find mechanisms globally in which we can try and improve the profitability of those countries Not just by dumping cash into them, but working for them to build their environments, build their economies. Dumping cash in compensation isn't going to help because it will just help the elites in smaller countries there to pocket it for themselves.
1: Stephen, I'm listening to a lot of your arguments and they strike me as quite classically old school left wing arguments. (laughs) But a lot of them, I I, I can imagine, you know, Barbara Castle, you know. Tony Benn, even, dare I say, Jeremy Corbyn, apart from the mass immigration thing, talking about the very same things that you're talking about. And yet, you were this evil man who wanted to be leader of UKIP. Yeah. What, what, what's gone wrong with, with the left and politics in general?
0: Well, I think in terms of the left, uh, driven by this desire under um, Blair Mandelson mm-hmm. uh, that they wanted to... They recognised that they were beginning to lose the vote of the working class male in particular and the families of the north. Why? Because there were no longer any culpits and we're killing the s- steel industry and the fishing industry was dying. So they had to make a political decision of where they're going to get the votes for in the future. So the votes they felt was easy pickings, was by manipulating university students into voting for them. The young people are always more aggressively pro-progressive like the rest of us. They want to just help the world, which we we do, but they don't, They think more with our heart and they never think with their heads. That was their analogies. And then mass migration was another way we're going to rub the right's face in this. was one of the comments that's often used, and we saw mass migration because statistically here in the UK and in the US and in Canada, is that my migrants who come here first tend to vote Labour or tend to vote the left organisation. So for them, that was a political turning point away from those of my estates who would say that some of the issues that we've talked about, the economic issues that impact those on the lowest incomes and the middle classes and the ability to move up the ladder were no longer as important anymore. The way that we'll salve that is just give them benefits. Keep them away push them away with benefits, the lazy way out of doing it. We won't deal with the proper issues, just throw them cash, and then we can look good again. That was Labour, and that's modern Labour today. Tony Benn's Arguments of Socialism was the first political book that I ever had, mm. uh, and I still have it. You know, it's a bit worn-torn and all the rest of it. And If you looked at that, the Labour of then were a Labour of looking after people Globally and internationally, one could argue that I don't want wars and I, I see the global elites. I might be a John Pilger type st- style uh, a viewpoints on some of that. Yes, where is this weird lefty coming into me? But on some issues, social contract issues, the family, the faith, the flag that I saw from my grandfather, and my grandmother, come here. the integration into our country. Those are parts that have been pilloried by the left. They hate us for that. They genuinely hate us and despise us. If we talk about... a a, a Catholic or a Christian religion in the UK, if they talk about flag-waving, I mean, what's it in the uh, Rochester by-election? There's an England flag, look Mm -hmm. at that, how disgusting is that? You know, they really don't like it. Because for them, the, the socialist internationalism is not about anything that could be positive patriotism at all. And positive patriotism can be a really beneficial thing if you're looking at how to improve our nation the way that we put our hands in our pockets for charities, the way that Red Nose Day, we come together, all of those are part of the historical aspects of who we are as Brits. But for the Labour Party and the left, yes, I have that social contract. Maybe that's what was slightly dangerous to some of those people who didn't want me in charge of the political party at the time. But there was also an element that has been captured by the right, and I think that's the zeitgeist that was there in the middle. And that's what we've seen in the kind of separation between modern left, modern democracy, democratic parties, sorry, and those in Europe, where we now, their main supporters, uh, immigrants first generation and second generation, university, and the intellectual elite, what I call Fabian socialists. And the traditional trade union socialists are not there. There are still some who might believe in it, but I think some of the traditional trade unionists have been bought off by the way that they can get huge amounts of money and have a reasonable lifestyle as well.
2: Or just forced out like Paul Embry who we've uh, had yes, on the show many times. You
0: yeah, know, absolutely.
2: Stephen, it's been a great conversation. Uh, before <laughs> we ask you uh, questions from our supporters, uh, first of all, tell everybody where they can follow your latest work. Yes. Yeah. Uh, and uh, we'll, we'll, we'll ask you our final question as well.
0: Yes, yeah, so if you go to the Centre for Migration and Economics Prosperity website, which is www.cmep.co.uk, That's where most of the work will start to come, and from there you'll feed off into the other works that I do around that as well.
1: Fantastic, so we've got one more question for you as always. Which is, what's the one thing we're not talking about, but we really should be?
0: Well, I, I think it's the way that we're manipulating our young people out of the concept of freedom. That we are watching our young people becoming more and more intolerant and accepting of that intolerance way that they can have people at universities saying you can't speak on a platform, the way that we attack individuals if we're not um, not in agreement with your view. I mean, you look at those in the LGBT movement who really championed it, who are now being banned from actually being, you know, standing up and talking about the transgender issues, for example. So there's something going on there where we're feeling it's quite easy... To manipulate young people into this kind of I- ideology that they all uh, agree with, the Greta Thunberg chanting brigade. Whether this was started by Tony Blair and that kind of movement, whether we see that kind of progressive elements that was there in Trudeau's way that he wanted to manage or uh, the, the, the truckers, it's this attempt to dissolve freedom into us and them and you're our pack, but it's done now at a younger age. And what we're seeing is a way that we put masks on children, weaponizing children, weaponizing our young people over the arguments of transgenderism. Why is it that we feel that you can take the Jesuit idea of getting when they're young now being accepted in politics instead of allowing them to live their lives freely without politics, without any of our adult views as children, and then at university and school being given a wider berth of opportunities? That's what's the concerning element to me, because once you're changing where we are seeing now, the generation that we're in, which was enabled to have a deeper conversations, will become narrower and more intolerant.
2: Stephen well fantastic. We're going to ask you a couple of questions oh. from our local supporters. But for now, thank you very much for coming on the My show. My pleasure. It's been, thank been a pleasure very much to have and you and on. Thank you for
0: having me. I've really enjoyed it. Thank it, you.
2: It's as have we. Uh, thank you for watching and listening. We'll see you very soon with another brilliant episode like this one or our show. All of
1: them go out 7 p.m. UK time. And for those of you who like your trigonometry on the go, it's also available as a podcast. Take care and see you soon, guys. In your opinion, do you ultimately believe that you dodged a
2: bullet by not becoming leader of UKIP?